Pastor Xavier Reese and God's invaluable gift to parents today on Simple Truths. James and John, sons of Zebedee. Zebedee means the gift of God, so the father was a gift to their children. The mother's a gift to the children. The children are through the womb, which are a gift to the parents. And you must value the gift that God gives to you. Children are on the highest level of value. And God will hold us responsible for the raising of our children. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Solome was a mother who raised some passionate men, James and John, the sons of thunder, no less. Not flawless men, but passionate and purposeful men, no doubt as a result of how she lived her own life. We know that children glean so much from the example that their parents are in their lives, good or bad. Salome's devotion to Christ and his ministry were evident as she is one of the women who stood at the foot of the cross. Pastor Xavier turns his focus to the influence mothers have on their children with a Mother's Day-inspired message titled, The Mother of James and John. Let's listen. The educators, the professionals, have been telling women they can be both mothers and career women for over 50 years, but it has only added to the breakdown of the family and the home and the price has been paid by the children. We have 50 years of it. There's no bogus lies anymore. The results are there and no one can deny it. The Bible places the greatest importance and value on mothers in the home to nurture and develop their children, their character, their morals, their ethics. Ladies, you will spend more time with your children than anybody else. That's the way God created it. Moses reminded the children of Israel, as you know, of their generational responsibility. You see, Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. It is we who pass through our children our heritage of Christ. And if we don't, then their next generation will not be there. People say, well, you shouldn't brainwash your children. No, you, your, your children need brainwashing. They got a dirty mind. They're your, they're your children. Okay? They're like, you need the Word of God? They need the Word of God. Let me give you some scriptures on Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 9. Moses there says, um, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your houses, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be a front and between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. God was to be the supreme consciousness of that home in everything you do. You say, let's get serious. This is modern time. Let's get serious. More so because it's modern times. Post-Christian generation, post-modern, whatever you want to call it. If you need anything regarding the Word of God, now today is a greater need of ever before. In Deuteronomy 11, 2, it says, Know today that I do not speak to your children who have not known or who have not seen the chasing of the Lord Yahweh God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arms. So in other words, they, they knew the exodus. They saw the miracles. They saw the power. Their kids grew up through the wilderness. Now they're going to enter the promised land. If you don't transfer, the perils of prosperity are one. The perils of adversities are another. But the peril of not transmitting our faith is the worst. And if you don't transmit that, the perils of prosperity and adversity will destroy your children if they don't get you also. There is no substitute for mothers. 
I can't emphasize that more than anything else. I'm not talking about being 23, 24 years old. I'm talking about being a 64-year-old man who has been married for 42 years, who has raised children, who has had grandkids, and I've been in ministry for over 40 years. Let me tell you, the carnage is all over the place because we've believed the philosophy of the world. Don't be criticizing the world. The world's lost. It's the church that's messed up. The world's lost. We're messed up because we're trying to buy the philosophy of the world. Let me lay it out for you here with the mother of the James and John. We're going to look at her from three vantage points. First, we're going to see the woman that she was a mother. Secondly, a woman who was an ambitious mother. And then thirdly, a woman who was a grateful mother. We'll look at those three. We begin with the woman who was a mother. Here in the book of Matthew will be our primary text, and we'll complement with the other ones. The woman had two sons, again, by the very title. Her name is Salome, James and John and her sons. The name Salome is identified with the wife of Zebedee, as you know, and uh, one of the women that visited the tomb. Uh, Matthew gives us that in Matthew 27, 56, and it'll cross-reference with Mark and the other ones. Now, this would mean that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This would make her an aunt to Jesus and her sons, cousins to Jesus as John the Baptist was, uh, Mark 15, 40 and John 19, 25. John's mother, Salome, the wife of Zebedee, along with other women, as you know, ministered to the needs and the substance of Jesus and the disciples in Matthew 27, 55, 56 and the other gospels also. Now, her son's name was James and John, sons of Zebedee. This is recorded in Matthew, Mark, as well as Luke. Zebedee means the gift of God, so the father was a gift to their children. The mother's a gift to the children. The children are fruit of the womb, which are a gift to the parents. And you must value the gift that God gives to you. Children are on the highest level of value. And God will hold us responsible for the raising of our children. Their father Zebedee was a man of social position, for John was known by the high priest and he was allowed to enter the courtroom, if you remember, when Jesus was arrested and taken to Annas in John 18, 15. So these guys were not poor, okay? And they had some clout. James was most likely the older of the two, seeing that John is often called the brother of James. So James is the older. You get this in Matthew 10, 2. Her sons, James and John, were both fishermen, Along with their father, they had a family business that we've seen going through the Gospel of Luke. We see it in Matthew 4 and John 1.44. We have that also in Luke 5. And the family business was prosperous. They had servants. They had boats, as we've seen. Matthew 1.20 also records that. And Zebedee's business was prosperous. And they had joined in partnership, as we've seen through Luke, with Peter and Andrew in Luke 5.10. So these guys were pretty well in society. Not filthy rich, but they were well off, and they had influence with those in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon's sons were called by Jesus to be his disciples, as you know. Their call came at the Sea of Galilee. Matthew gives us this in chapter 4, 18 through 22. And Jesus had just called two brothers. As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. As they were casting their nets into the sea in Luke. Now, going on from there, 
he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, and they were mending their nets, Luke told us in chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. And um, they left all, and they followed Jesus immediately. They just abandoned everything. Luke says their call came when the boats were standing by the lake and they were washing their nets, Luke 5, 3 through 8. So the Gospels will give you different perspectives to give you a whole picture of what really was going on. So you have three synoptic Gospels and you have the Gospel of John, which is written for the purpose that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Putting them all together, you get a complete picture. Now, Solomon's two sons were strong, aggressive, and zealous individuals. Uh, Jesus gave them the, the name the Sons of Thunder in uh, Matthew 3.17. Uh, Mark alone gives us the particular characteristics of uh, these Zebedee boys. I don't think that Jesus gave them the name because they were loving and patient and they're just very mellow kind of guys, you know? I, I think you wouldn't mess with these guys. Um, you wouldn't try to rip them off with their fish, and you wouldn't fish in their fishing hole or you're going to be history. Jesus one day was rejected by the Samaritans, as you know, in Luke 9, 51 through 55. And um, due to the fact that he was headed to Jerusalem, the Samaritans rejected him. And James and John, seeing the rejection of Jesus, they said there in verse 54 of Luke 9, it says, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven to consume them just like Elijah did? Jesus turned around and rebuked them. He says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. You see, James and John were confusing their flesh of impatience and intolerance for the spiritual zeal of Elijah. See, often our flesh and our arrogance, we can try to say, well, that's because I love God. And it's flesh. You can put any kind of label on what you do or what I do. But after I take the label off, it says flesh underneath. And I try to attribute my own competence, my own arrogance, my own self-righteousness to being a work of God. That's an insult to Jesus. John one day told Jesus, um, teacher, we saw one casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he followed not us. Mark 9, 38 and Luke 9, 49. Jesus said to John, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. Mark 9, 39 through 40. So there, there will be distinctions within Christians. They must be distinctions that do not affect the atonement, the critical doctrines of the scripture. Today, too many want to be ecumenical. Let's not make judgment. Let's just love one another. No. You must have doctrine. Doctrine sets the boundaries. Would you allow someone to come to your home and you have certain rules on how to conduct themselves, how you do things, they just come in and they just change everything around? No, you wouldn't. Well, why do we allow that in the church? John and James lean towards intolerance and exclusivism of, of sectarian thinking, but not the way the political agenda of today, the PC language the PC language neutralizes all objective truth, all, all right judgment. It's subjective, not objective. When you drive home, I've told you often, there's red light, green light, and yellow light. 
Now, you, you believe that and you obey that. You drive objectively, not subjectively. If you go on a red and think and say, well, today's going to be green, you might not get home. So you may have subjective ethics and morals, but you believe the objective truths of principles of the scripture for driving, for banking, and everything else, so you're a hypocrite. You choose what you want. You reject what you want. John in his openness to turn all those sinful qualities over to the Lord was transformed into more like Jesus. In fact, John is known as the disciple that Jesus loved in this gospel, chapter 13, 19, 20. John is identified by his own pen in the Last Supper as the one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. In John 13, 23. And Jesus had a special place for John. Now, we have to be careful when, when, when God has a special place for certain people, we don't conclude that that is favoritism. You know, John had a special place. But you had Peter, James, and John, the three that had a special place apart from the other nine. But that's not favoritism. You and I can have favoritism, but God can. He's absolutely holy. He's just. He cannot make mistakes. He knows what's best. John was the only apostle at the cross, by the way, that Jesus committed his mother to in John 19, 26, and 27. The rest were all women. He was the only man. Now, as you know, James, being very strong, aggressive, zealous, and ambitious individual, became a target for persecution. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, Herod the king stretched out his hands um, to harass some of them in the church, and he killed James by the sword. We don't know the exact circumstances, but nevertheless, it was just open persecution. And John would live to old age after being boiled in oil, and he didn't die. They put him in the island of Patmos, and then he was released years after, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And so um, uh, they, they didn't have an easy life. These were training years, the first three and a half years with Jesus. And yet their mother had a big part of their life. Now, many times people respond in every generation. Um, certainly, I've heard it from day one when I was born again. Well, you know, it's so much difficult today. It's different today. We have to know it. Listen, you never allow the culture to set the agenda for you as a Christian. Okay? This is what the emergent church does. It, it, it goes to the culture. It changes the scripture. The scripture is the scripture for every generation. It never changes. What, what the first century church had to obey, we have to obey. How they have to live, we have to live. The culture doesn't alter it. The time doesn't change it, nor the nation, nor the place, nor the comfort, nor the persecution. Everybody's under the same obedience to the word of God. Mothers, you have uh, the greatest influence over your children's lives. You spend more time with them than anybody else every day to mature them spiritually, emotionally, physically as they're growing to the level that God would want their personalities. Let me give you just a good example of the time that you can invest to impact your child or the lack thereof to shape, mold, and nurture them in the Lord and in the way they're going to go. A mother who stays home conservatively will spend about 10 hours a day interacting with her child. The other 14 will allow for sleeping and whatever else nonsense, Okay. A mother at home would be spending 3,360 hours in the first year with her child. 
A mother who is at work, on the other hand, would spend at the most four hours a day if she got home at 6 p.m., resulting in 336 hours a year in contrast to 33,360 hours by the mother at home. 336 hours compared to 3,360 hours. If you extend these figures to the age of 12 or 6th grade, it would equate 40,330 hours spent with one's children at home in comparison to 4,032 hours if you work. From the age of 13 to 18, Things change, friends, sports, more activity. So if we use the figure of four hours from age 13 to 18 that a mother will spend with a child, it would equate 2,016 hours from junior high school to the end of high school for the mothers at home. If you work, four hours would be stretching it, but granting the same time, the end result after 18 years is shocking. The mother who stayed home would be invested in influencing her child 42,336 hours, while the mother who works would be investing and influencing her child only 6,048 hours, a 7 to 1 ratio. That means that someone else will spend and invest in your child 36,288 hours that will affect and influence their morals, their ethics, their family values, their habits, their manner of thinking. And the secularists, the humanists, and the progressives have understood this, and that's why our nation is where it's at. Because the children are more like the teachers, the educators, the babysitters, than the parents. The woman, Salome, was a mother. She was a Jewish the scriptures, the background. Now notice, secondly, the woman was an ambitious mother. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and 21, Solomon came seeking greatness for her sons. Now nothing wrong with that in itself. She's presented twice by the same scenario in the Gospel of Matthew here, uh, 20, and then in Mark 10, 35 through 45. And Solomon came to Jesus and her two sons, James and John, in verse 20. Whatever they came for, all three of them were aware and in agreement of what they were going to petition. Whatever both men wanted from Jesus, they thought that their chances would be better if they brought their mommy to intercede. Salome knelt down before Jesus to petition him in verse 20 there. The posture of Salome is one of recognition of a superior before her. The personal petition indicated that Jesus was able to grant her petition. The posture and petition were disguised as personal worship. She wasn't worshiping him. She wanted something from him. Solomon in verse 21 was asked by Jesus what she wished. She sought out, out of pride and ambition, personal favor for her sons. Grant that these two sons of mine are good boys. Still in 21, she asked, that power and prestige be granted to them, that her sons may sit, one on the right hand, the other on the left hand, in your kingdom, Matthew says, in your glory. I mean, Mark 10, in your glory. To sit on the right hand implies privilege and power, as you know. 
Webster defines power as the ability or capacity to exercise control and authority. Did they have it? No. Did they want it? Absolutely. In your glory implies prestige, as Mark puts it in Mark 10.37. Webster defines prestige as the prominence or influential status achieved through success, renown, or wealth. Did they have it? No. Did they want it? Yes. Who were these two guys? Two of the dirty dozen. They weren't servants at this point. They wanted to be served. It isn't until after the resurrection when their eyes were opened, the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. The three of them probably had the thrones in which the 12 would sit upon in mind. Those thrones will be mentioned in Matthew 19, 28. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. The three were even considering, weren't even considering what Jesus had just talked about, death and resurrection, the death of the cross in verse 17 and 19. So the context makes it more insulting. She in her mind, as well as her sons, probably believed that Jesus favored them above other disciples. Because we always think that people like us more than others, right? They had been chosen to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead in Mark 5.37. Peter, James, John. No one else. They had been chosen by Jesus to see him transfigured on the mountain. Mark 9, 2, and Matthew 17. Peter, James, John. Now, Solomon said, well, Peter's okay, but my two boys are there. She's going to love her boys more than Peter, right? They had a strange combination of aggressive zeal, ambition with a sectarian attitude. Two ruffians and self-centered mama's boys. Amazing. See, often we read the scriptures with colored glasses. We don't see them as God presents them. God presents his people warts and all. None of them were perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We fall short. Now, Matthew 20, verse 22 through 23, Salome and her sons were reproved for seeking the greatness. In 22, Jesus told them that they did not know what they asked. The word asked there in the Greek it represents a person acting on their own interests, self-seeking. So the Greek is very particular, very specific. You can't hide it. It is the indirect middle voice, they call. So they all knew they were coming for self-interest. And the word indicates that. And certainly Jesus knows what's in your heart, no matter whether you bow, whatever you say, or, you know, like Eddie Haskell, good morning, Mr. Cleaver. You know what I mean? It's just... It's a facade. Now, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. That's the problem. Jeremiah 17, 9. When we're Christians, we get born again. We get transformed. God gives us a divine nature. But my old sin nature is still there. I can be a rat like anybody else. It's a choice now. There's no excuses. No Christian can excuse himself. No Christian can justify himself. No Christian can blame other people. You are responsible on the choices you make, how you respond, how you deal with issues. Blaming other people may have held some water to an extent by people in the world, but Jesus doesn't buy any of it. Jesus does not believe in your dysfunctionalism. He says, you're a sinner. Now I've saved you. You're accountable to me by my word and by my spirit. I give you my spirit, my word, my mind, the armor. I've enabled you. Pastor Xavier Reese has been using the example of the mother of James and John, Salome, to illustrate the simple truths of the true source of our enablement. 
And you can hear this message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But there's much more to come of this study right here next time as well. But if you won't be able to join us, you can always pick up a copy for your own continued study. The title to ask for is The Mother of James and John, and it's available on CD for only $4. And this would be a great tool you can pass along to someone in your church or Bible study. Once again, the title to ask for is The Mother of James and John, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station and all your correspondence. This is one way we have of checking on the impact of this outreach in your area. Next time, Pastor Xavier Reese explains how our walk of faith begins and ends at the feet of Jesus. Hope you'll tag along. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 